We have some exciting news to share. Future Hindsight is now in partnership with Lyceum, a new audio platform for the curious and creative to listen, learn, and connect. Sounds like it's a perfect place for us. Here's a message from the founder. Hi, I'm Zachary Davis. I'm the host of two podcasts, Ministry of Ideas, which explores the philosophy behind everyday concepts, and Writ Large, a new podcast about the books that change the world. I love educational podcasts. I love listening to them and talking about them. I want everyone to have that chance. And so I've built a new platform called Lyceum, which makes it easy to discover great educational podcasts and have conversations about them. There are more than a million podcasts out there. We've done the hard work of sifting through them and finding only the very best education shows to listen to. Shows like the one you're listening to right now. So if you love learning, Download Lyceum today on the App Store or Google Play, or visit us at lyceum.fm. That's L-Y-C-E-U-M dot F-M. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Fred Pierce. He's the author of Fallout, disasters, lies, and the legacy of the nuclear age, and has reported on environmental, science, and development issues from 88 countries over the past 30 years. His book is a full account of our nuclear history from harrowing stories of gross negligence and irresponsible behavior by governments who are testing nuclear weapons in the Pacific to nuclear reactor accidents around the globe, including Chernobyl and Fukushima. You could perhaps for a while have said that if the overwhelming long-term threat, indeed short-term threat for the world today revolves around climate change, you could have made the case that nuclear power is a relatively low carbon source of energy, not zero, but relatively low. And for a while, it was a reasonable argument, I think. But now there are so many other low-carbon sources of energy, wind power, solar power, and tidal power, that we know have no need for nuclear power as our only alternative to burning fossil fuels. Most of those alternatives are cheap and getting cheaper, whereas nuclear power is expensive and getting more expensive. And the principal reason for that is to keep it safe. We discuss the various reasons nuclear energy is not practical, whether it is in the cost or in the management of its waste, the link between nuclear weapons and nuclear energy, and what this means for the future of nuclear power. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Mila. It's good to be with you. So the atomic age starts with the detonation of the first nuclear weapons in World War II in Japan in 1945. What caught your attention at this time that you started to write this book? What struck me was that I believe we're reaching towards the end of the nuclear age. So what I wanted to do with the book was basically chart the course that we've taken Back in the 1950s, the atomic age was seen as the height of modernism. There were the bombs, but there was also nuclear power, the idea of almost free nuclear energy that our societies were going to run off. There was a huge degree of optimism as well as fear about nuclear energy. 
And now, 70 and more years on, it seems to me like we're coming to the end of that. We're reaching the limits of our patience in many ways with this technology, or perhaps more particularly our ability of our societies to manage it successfully. I wanted to be even-handed about it, to look at the benefits of nuclear energy and some of the more frightening side and the parts we found difficult to manage and our psychological inability very often to cope with this technology and the implications of it, just to chart its course and perhaps in doing that to give some signposts about how future technologies, how we may manage those in the Anthropocene. So it's a kind of precursor, I suspect, to our new age. Well, I think you do a great job in laying out the landscape. And I was really struck by several things. One is the amount of secrecy and lies, about which you write uh, consistently throughout the book, that have come from the governments trying to cover up their tracks, especially in the 50s when there was open-air testing of nuclear bombs into the atmosphere and the fallout and the radiation sickness that have befallen people who were downwind. One of the things that makes it so difficult for nuclear power to be widely accepted is that these things are somewhat inseparable, the nuclear testing, the bombing, and the energy. And then, of course, the accidents. Still, at the end of the day, after examining the evidence of civilian nuclear activities, including Chernobyl and Fukushima, you've concluded that they're mostly safe. How do you reach that conclusion? One of the problems with nuclear technology is that everybody's either for it or against it. So I deliberately tried to chart a a different path to analyze rather than to take a side on it. Even though the, the risks that we probably run from this technology are in many of our minds very inflated, even the Chernobyl accident, which is pretty much the worst accident you could imagine, um, apart from uh, obviously detonating a nuclear bomb, probably not killed that many people. But nobody is going to kind of believe what even the best scientists say about this because of the history of cover-up, the history of deceit. Why should we believe what we're told by the experts? So perhaps in this era where we're very cynical about experts, perhaps it was the nuclear industry that taught us to be cynical about experts, taught us not to accept what the authorities said. And perhaps that's another symbol of the Anthropocene, an era where we're very dependent on cutting-edge technology, but also really rather fearful of much of it and certainly rather questioning about um, the experts who bring it to us. Well, I think one of the problems with the experts is that their data is not necessarily that good. I was really surprised by the inadequacy of testing all around. Can you speak a little bit more about how shoddily testing was done? So one of the things that you both said about Chernobyl is like, well, they didn't test before. So whatever they have after, you know, was collected surreptitiously and may not be up to snuff academically. Yeah. um, Well, in the natural world, there's been a lot of concern about what low levels of radiation might do to humans. 
It is frightening how bad the evidence on all this is. It's really a failure of good science. Some experts believe that any level of radiation is dangerous, so even the tiny amounts that we might get the sort of leftovers from nuclear bomb tests, the small amount of radiation, or I would say it was small coming out of accidents like Chernobyl or Three Mile Island, carries a risk with it. So we just increase our risk of dying of a cancer by a, a, a given amount. Other experts believe that there's quite a high threshold below which there really is no risk to humans, that the human body has an ability to cope with a certain amount of radiation. And they would say, well, radiation is natural in the environment. Many of our rocks are mildly radioactive. We live in an environment where radiation is coming in from space. And if you take a flight uh, across the Atlantic, you pick up a fair dose of radiation as you go. Now, you'd have thought that was a fairly basic question that would have been resolved by now. And yet it remains a fundamental dispute among scientists about the risks that we run from radiation. So the estimates of how many people might have been killed by the atmospheric testing that reached a peak in the late 50s and early 1960s, the estimates vary from tens of thousands of people dying across the world during the, the 60s and perhaps on into the 70s and the 80s to people who believe that virtually nobody died. It is really very strange that even basic things like that have not been resolved. In the research that's been done into the exclusion zone around Chernobyl, the nuclear accident in the Ukraine in the 1980s, people have been looking at damage to DNA to the wildlife there. A lot of wildlife has come back into that exclusion zone because there are so few people there and wildlife really likes the absence of people. So the question is whether the wolves and the bears and the birds and everything else are being damaged by the radiation. And yet we don't have an answer to that either. There's always a, a, a level of DNA damage in the natural environment, whether from radiation or just from normal evolution. So we don't know if these radioactive wolves are kind of on a one-way trip to genetic disaster because of the buildup of mutations in their genome or whether this is just kind of regular and normal. So these kind of basic questions remain unresolved. And I think this is part of our quite natural fear of this technology, but it arises also out of the secrecy that has pervaded it throughout. So government scientists have very often not been given the uh, the freedom that they need to do the research. I found your chapter on the management of waste super fascinating because I think people don't understand, or certainly I didn't understand until I read your book, just how much is involved in shutting down nuclear reactors and in managing the waste. Tell us about what you discovered by going to Southfield and to Germany. We're left with these really very long-lasting and really very radiologically dangerous new products. The hundreds of tons of plutonium that we've produced is a highly radioactive isotope, which we've got to keep safe for future generations for thousands, tens of thousands of years. Arguably, the biggest practical problem with nuclear energy is dealing with these wastes. 
They are mostly sitting in uh, silos and holding facilities at power plants and recycling facilities. These nuclear stores are final resting places for this waste. Some of it is in still very unstable condition. Some of it indeed was being made more stable because people at one time felt they were going to use these isotopes either for more nuclear weapons or for new kinds of fuel, for new kinds of reactors. So we've created a very large amount of extremely dangerous waste, which is not currently causing us great damage, but it is extremely expensive to store. So we're going to have to find a final resting place. We're going to have to make the material as safe as we can manage. That probably means treating it and then uh, fixing it in glass or something of that sort. And we're going to have to bury it very deep underground. The Germans, for instance, having decided uh, a few years back that they were going to get out of nuclear energy altogether, are finding that that's not the end of the story because they still have these wastes and they've still got to decide what to do with them. For instance, some of them have been sent to the UK and elsewhere for treatment, but will ultimately have to go back to Germany. Will Germany take them back? Some people say, well, they want to be nuclear free, so they don't want to take these wastes back. But then other people say, well, we have a responsibility to take them back because there are waste that was generated in our nuclear power stations. So there are huge disputes going on in Germany. Germany thought that it could say no to nuclear power. And it's discovering that it's not so easy. We have these huge legacies which we have to deal with. And that is true for the world as a whole. Very large stockpiles of really long-term dangerous nuclear waste that we have now no alternative but to try and keep safe. It is a really rather sobering assessment. Well, I think... The cost and the uncertainty, like you said, going into the future, you know, in a thousand years, we won't be alive, but somebody will still have to deal with, let's say, one of the salt mines caving or some of the canisters leaking. And in fact, one of the things that really struck me is how sloppy this industry is in many ways. You talk about some of these pipes cracking, things leaking for an industry that is this unsafe, there is no room for mistakes, whether it's human error or a fail-safe that's gone wrong. And yet it happens all the time. The Stockholm International Peace Research Institute actually estimates that the world currently is sitting on around 550 tons of plutonium, which you just mentioned takes thousands of years to decay. So in the year 2000, Russia and the U.S. agreed to get rid of 37.5 tons of surplus military plutonium each by mixing it with uranium to make MOX fuel for burning in power stations. And I thought, well, this is maybe a good way to get rid of it, but it failed. What happened? It turns out the MOX power stations were extremely expensive. The technology hadn't been developed The Russians have probably gone the furthest with this, but essentially the British and the the Americans got a little way down the track and abandoned the project. I think really it's very expensive and there's no public support for continuation of nuclear industry in any form. We were once told that nuclear power would be too cheap to meter. This is back in the 1960s, in the early days when we were having atoms for peace, which is the cry of the nuclear industry. 
But it is turning out to be an extremely expensive technology, especially when you take account of the waste products. It is virtually an uninsurable industry, so everything has to be underwritten by governments. And we live in an era now where it's not popular politically to have governments underwriting industry. So it falls foul of a whole range of kind of modern feelings about risk, about economic management, about the role of the state in society. You could perhaps for a while have said that if the overwhelming long-term threat, indeed short-term threat for the world today revolves around climate change, you could have made the case that nuclear power is a relatively low carbon source of energy, not zero, but relatively low. And for a while, it was a reasonable argument, I think. But now there are so many other low-carbon sources of energy, wind power, solar power, and tidal power, and a number of others coming along, that we know have no need for nuclear power as our only alternative to burning fossil fuels. Most of those alternatives are cheap and getting cheaper whereas nuclear power is expensive and getting more expensive. And the principal reason for that is to keep it safe. It's a very expensive operation. Decommissioning is now the biggest business in the nuclear industry, the business of taking part in keeping safe nuclear power plants and the fuel that's gone through them. If you talk to people in the nuclear industry, they're all talking about decommissioning. They're not talking about building new nuclear power plants. Virtually nobody outside China and Russia are doing that. Everything is now about how to safely shut down the industry. That's so ironic. Well, given everything that you have researched, what do you actually think are safe levels of radiation for people every day, sort of in a year? My own feeling is that there are really very limited risks. That's my sense of having read the literature that's been produced over the years. Very few people are now dying of the after effects of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Even the people who were exposed to the very high levels of radiation, most of the people that were living in Hiroshima and Nagasaki when the bombs went off have lived decent lives and have died natural deaths at the end of their expected lifespan. So the evidence seems to be that we're not living in a sort of nuclear cloud that is of danger to us. The radiation risks that we run in our daily lives, I don't really think, amount to very much compared to other kinds of risks, certainly not compared to coronavirus, which is a much higher risk than almost any of us are likely to come across from radiation. But it's something that we could minimise, and it's something where we could reduce the legacy for future generations. Well, one of the things that you mentioned in the book at length is in fact, the fallout of Fukushima may not have been so much radiation as it was PTSD and depression, you know, living with uncertainty, not knowing when they can go back to their old communities or not being sure that it will ever be safe and therefore not returning. I think a lot of people don't think about nuclear accidents in this way, that it isn't only the actual radiation, but it's also the psychological fallout in the long term. You end your book with a chapter on going to Nagasaki and meeting with the director of the Research Center for Nuclear Weapons Abolition. And after the Fukushima accident, he changed his mind about advocating for nuclear energy. What made him change his mind? I think he saw that 
nuclear energy and nuclear weapons do go together because they're essentially the same technology and that the risks we run are risks that we don't need to run. Japan was really quite pro-nuclear power until the Fukushima accident. He saw the society damage that was done by the tsunami and by the exclusion zone that had to be created because of the fallout from what happened at the power plant. Now, the Japanese have spent a great deal of money cleaning up the landscape, scraping soil, removing vegetation and piling it all up. It's cost tens of billions of dollars and they are still spending and they still haven't made the nuclear power plant safe. That is still also extremely dangerous, an extremely large amount of radiation in it. A huge area of Japan, which is, you know, a densely populated country has been for the last 10 years uninhabitable. People are being told now that they can move back into the areas that have been cleaned up. But by and large, people don't want to go back. They're fearful uh, of the radiation, especially for their children, but also you know, people's lives have moved on. They've taken the government compensation. They've got new lives, new jobs, new schools. And you can understand why they don't want to go back. And the society dislocation, as well as the cleanup costs of this accident, were absolutely huge. And I think he reached the same conclusion as me, is that while probably the number of people who died from radiation in that accident was perhaps just a handful of people Many more people died as a result of the impact of the evacuation. I mean, some old people were simply left behind in old people's homes in the chaos of the evacuation. Some people uh, got very depressed afterwards. There was a surge in suicides among the people who evacuated. A whole series of social problems and psychological problems that have come from the evacuation. Now, those are real victims of the accident, and nobody should pretend that they're somehow not. But the actual outcome was more about psychology than radiation. Those were real effects and real consequences. And it may well be true that a similar thing could be said about other nuclear accidents, about Chernobyl, for instance, that most of the outcomes were psychological and social. Another reason, as far as I'm concerned, to say we should say goodbye to technology. If I wanted to be an activist and end the practice of nuclear power in our electricity, what are two things I could be doing? I would be spending all my time looking at what are people are doing with the waste. We don't have the solutions for what to do with the waste coming out of the reactors. We don't have the solutions for what to do with the contaminated material of the power plants themselves when they reach the end of their lives. And if I was campaigning on nuclear energy issues, I would be saying we should not be persevering with the technology where we haven't solved these basic problems. The heart of my opposition to nuclear energy really would come back to nuclear weapons. That is a real fast impact. The creation of nuclear weapons creates a huge and entirely unnecessary risk to the world. The bombs that fell on Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, killed tens of thousands of people, but they're tiny compared to the bombs that we've created since, the hydrogen bombs that are still sitting in silos, ready to go if the politicians decide. Those would kill millions of people, as individual ones would kill millions of people. We really should not 
have technology of that sort sitting around the planet in case um, you know some idiot decides to let them off. These days, perhaps even more than before, we don't know what kind of idiots are going to be in charge of our politics in future. We should be decommissioning nuclear weapons. And as an activist, that is where I would place my greatest stress. The only way of securing the final defeat of nuclear weapons would be to get rid of the technology itself. And that would include ending nuclear power as well. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? I do believe that we're coming to the end of the nuclear age. I see around the world that outside China and Russia, which are not democratic societies, nobody really wants to build nuclear power because there is no public support for it. So democratic societies are really giving up on nuclear power. That seems to me a good thing. We need to extend that now to getting rid of nuclear weapons. There have been non-proliferation agreements, certainly. There have been decommissioning agreements. We still have a lot of weapons there, and some of our politicians today don't seem too keen to get rid of them. And the public pressure is not strong to get rid of them because we've almost, as a society, forgotten about them. But I am hopeful that in 30 or 40 years' time, perhaps not in my lifetime, but soon afterwards, the world can be free of nuclear weapons. There is really no reason to keep them now, other than perhaps for the ego of some politicians. In the UK, we still have our own independent nuclear deterrent, which in fact we could only uh, launch with the support of Americans. That seems to be the height of folly. And in Britain, it's a great waste of money and a stupid uh, kind of egotistical thing that our politicians have got into. The same applies to Russia, the US, to China, to France, and to all the nuclear powers. They really have no need of these weapons. They provide no security. They only provide insecurity. I believe, because I am an optimist, that in 30 or 40 years' time, we will have got rid of these weapons. We will have got rid of nuclear energy. And we'll probably look back and say, wow, that was a real crazy mistake they made, but at least we got over it. Oh, well said. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time and thank you for writing this book. Thank you, Miller. I enjoyed talking to you. By returning to the roots of nuclear energy, which is nuclear weapons and its inherent secrecy, I finally have a better understanding about the spotty data and why there is still disagreement about what doses of radioactivity are safe. I basically agree with Fred that humans seem to be ill-equipped to deal with nuclear technology. It is unforgiving in the face of human error or unforeseen, unlikely accidents. And finally, the idea that nuclear waste is so small in comparison to the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and is therefore a viable alternative grossly misrepresents the issues with safely maintaining that waste. Yes, Nuclear is low carbon in comparison to coal. But that's, unfortunately, where the allure ends. I hope that solar, wind, and water really will be the simple, low carbon solution for our energy needs in the future. Next week, our guest is Jeffrey Supran. He's a research associate in the Department of the History of Science at Harvard University and investigates the history of global warming politics particularly the climate communications, 
denial and delay tactics of fossil fuel interests. His study, assessing ExxonMobil's climate change communications, demonstrates that the company misled the public about climate change. We discuss how Exxon invented the advertorial, how relentless the propaganda by the fossil fuel industry against climate change continues to be, and why we need to develop a trust in reputable sources on climate reporting. We found that whereas roughly 80% of the company's peer-reviewed academic literature accepted, acknowledged the basic reality that climate change is real and human cause, basically the same fraction, about 80% of their advertorials, their public communications, promoted doubt on that very same matter. So what we'd essentially empirically demonstrated was a systematic discrepancy between what they were saying privately and in academic circles and what they were saying loudly, publicly into the New York Times. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Zumbu. Additional production by Brooke Sayan. Listen to us online at futurehindsight.com or your favorite streaming service. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.